Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Sorry, it's a little noisy on my end. Can you hear me? I think I'm, I think we're good. Hey everyone, this is Evelyn, your host, and thank you for joining me here on Repin. We're living in a world where all of us are labeled by superficial things, like our skin color, gender, orientation, what we own, the jobs we have. These are just some of the things that impact positions we hold in society. Reppin is where we peel all of it back and gain insight on a person's character and integrity. It's about the actions and values we show up and fight for. I'm continually blown away by the incredible people who come to guest. Their trust, time, and support for this show is truly humbling. Like my guest today, they originated the role of Vanessa in In the Heights on Broadway. The following year, they won a 2009 Tony Award for Best Featured Actress for their performance as Anita in the revival of West Side Story. They also stepped into the role of Angelica Schuyler in the Chicago production of Hamilton. And in 2019, they originated the lead role of Santine of Moulin Rouge on Broadway, earning them a nomination for the 2020 Tony Award for Best Actress in a Musical. On screen, you've seen them on Harry's Law, The Good Wife, Law & Order, and also Law & Order SVU. Recently, they risked everything when they openly spoke out against a very prominent and powerful producer who has a reputation of being a bully and for abusive behavior in the workplace. Find out why they went on out on a limb and the hit they were willing to take for everyone around them. Say hello to Karen Olivo. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You look wonderful. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you for saying that. I I do feel a little uh, disheveled right now. So um, I'm going to really accept that compliment and let that sort of build inside of me. All right. Um, Look good. Feel good. Everything is great. Thanks for having me. I always love talking to talented, incredible people, but you're also a native New Yorker. So I love that. You were born in the South Bronx. You have a really interesting background. You are of Puerto Rican, Native American, Dominican, and Chinese descent. Now, New York City is obviously one of the most diverse cities in the world. Can you tell me a little bit about your family, your upbringing? Because then you also relocated to Florida, which is, you know, obviously not as diverse. I mean, nothing as diverse as New York. But what was your upbringing like? Like, did you realize that you were quote unquote mixed race or minority? Because even though I'm from New York, one of the boroughs of New York, which is very, very different from being in the city, I was very well aware of how I didn't fit in or sit properly. What was it like for you? Mm, gosh, that's a, there's a lot in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, you'll keep me honest here if I, if I, you know, if I lose my way, but 
first thing that I, the first thing that I sort of actually bumped on was, I think it's written somewhere that I am Native American and it would be Taino from Puerto Rico, that sort of Native. Um, so I, I, I could not necessarily say that I'm uh, a part of an indigenous tribe. Understood. I, I think that someone put that on the internet and I've never really figured out how to <laughs> correct it. Fix that. Okay. But everything else is absolutely spot on, Dominican, Chinese, and Puerto Rican. So, you know, since we're talking about indigenous tribes, I'm talking to you from the land of the Ho-Chunk, people of the big voice here in Madison, Wisconsin. Being a native New Yorker, I moved to central Florida at a very interesting time in my life. It was the 80s. (laughs) Um... (laughs) I came from being in a place where everything was possible and sort of I I didn't see a difference in in people Mm -hmm. per se to a place that was incredibly polarizing. And Central Florida at the time was really, really white. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand that I had to make uh, a choice as to what I would be considered. Okay. Which was really interesting. My parents were both immigrants. And so I'm first generation they were looking for a better life for me, you know, and my family. And um, we didn't necessarily find our people in Central Florida, but we did find theater. <laughs> and then that sort of introduced us to our people. Got it. <laughs> through the arts. Yes. When did you relocate to Florida? I was about eight. Okay. So at that point, you didn't really notice any sort of difference, right? When did you notice or were you made uh, aware of? that you were not white? Uh, Almost immediately when I arrived in Central Florida, I I remember being in first grade and having a conversation with the kid and they kept asking me what I was. And I kept saying, "Um, I'm a a girl. (laughs) I'm like not really getting, not getting it. It's the right answer still. Yeah. Yeah. I just, and they just like sort of scratching their head. And then I remember uh, it wasn't until a little bit later, I want to say, I noticed differences in the way that I was treated based on like you know, the way that people were grouped. But it wasn't until a little further in, I want to say maybe like third or fourth grade, someone asked me, well, are you like so-and-so or are you like so-and-so? And they were they were talking about someone who identified as um, Mexican or someone who identified as Black. Huh. And I was like, neither. <laughs> Because I wasn't Mexican. Right. And they were like, no, 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 you're not understanding. So are you this or are you that? And then they actually showed me, they were like, well, so-and-so hangs out with so-and-so and and that that person hangs out with those people and you don't, like, where do you want to fit? And at that point in grade school, I was like, oh, to be here, I must make a choice on how I'm viewed. That was really jarring to me because I come from a family that is in the theater. So it's like, everyone is accepted. <laughs> like, right. You know, it doesn't matter. Everyone can make art. We, right. we never really make a choice. The club is always open. Right. Um, so yeah, it was pretty young that I started to realize this place won't allow me to exist in all spaces. I have to choose a lane. So what did you do? Because at that age, we don't have a clue as to who we are and what, what our truths are or our identity. I think it's safe to say that a lot of adults at this point still have no idea, you know, where they fit in or what their identity is. 
How did you contend with that? Um, you know, sadly, I had I made choices based out of fear ah, and okay. preservation. The area that I was going to school was really, really racist. It was so segregated in so many different ways. And so I looked to see who fared the best in in full survival mode. This group of people were treated differently and these people were afforded certain things. And I made a choice based on that. And it wasn't until, you know, much later on in my adulthood that I realized that that's, it started the beginning of my relationship with colorism. And it really did sort of inform a lot about how I would walk through the world. Sort of my proximity to whiteness became very important in the South because it was about access. Right. You were afforded specific things. And so as a child, I knew enough to keep myself safe and to keep myself, you know, in a place that afforded me opportunity, which saddens me now. Yeah. But that's, I mean, my, my story is not much different from so many. Unfortunately. And that's still the case, right? Access yeah. and color. Access. It's yes. amazing. And I think those who have it never have really questioned it because they've never not had it, right? Right. So when you were at this age group, being that your family was so accepting and never made what you look like or your ethnicity um, something that you needed to recategorize or pick a side, what was your family like in terms of support and some of the values that they gave you, it is a core part of your being, your foundation as a woman. Hmm. That's interesting. Early on when I lived in New York, you know, uh, race, status, those things like that never really entered into the the picture. But when we got to Florida, it, it was very evident. My father was really instrumental in showing me power dynamics and what I would need in this specific area to succeed. My father was not a fan of people who had money. Um, so that was something that was always sort of instilled in me that money did not mean good, that it was about someone's character and how they showed up. And so I, I think that that is something that I've always sort of held onto how you show up for people and not necessarily the the quality of something that is given, but like really the, the, well, actually invert that the quantity is not as much as the quality of what it is in my relationships. I always look for someone who can give what they have and gives it wholeheartedly rather than something that may seem pretty flashy on paper, something that is performative. That's something that is like being real was always at the core of what my family sort of instilled in me. Just be a real person who shows up for other people. I love that. As a kid, your parents instill or try to instill a lot of lessons and principles for you to become. But, you know, there are moments in our lives, I think, that those lessons are actualized. Do you remember one moment where that sort of that understanding of money is not everything? It's about being authentic. That that it's about character and integrity sort of crystallized for you. It was, it became your truth. You lived it. Ooh, that's a really good question. I mean, look, it's, I'm sure with enough time I could come up with many. Yeah. 
One of the things that I think it was probably instilled with my grandparents who also lived in Central Florida, and that was, they were the reason that we ended up uh, settling in the area that we did in Central Florida. They had gone there to retire, was that my grandmother was really big in, um, in her church life and their culture. And I would remember that we would spend a lot of time going to visit people from all different walks of life all over Florida. They would put us in the car and we would go and visit them and we would sit with them. And I remember one specific time that we visited a family that lived in a very, very meager place. It was, you know, it was like a dirt floor. It was, um, it wasn't even like a trailer. It was sort of like a shack. And, and I remember them sort of like this feeling of like, oh, we had arrived. And I remember looking at my grandparents and them humbling themselves to those, these people who were sort of opening their doors and saying, please, you know, what can we offer you? Please sit and pray with us. And it was something that was like, oh, we're all the same. My grandparents and my my parents were were very clear on we enter at the same time. We we both walk hand in hand regardless of where we come from. And so from really early on, I, I realized the equalizing of where we were was very important. And that's something that's I, I think I've kept with me regardless of my industry likes to put people in different tiers and um, right education will put you in different tiers and your socioeconomic background will put you in different tiers. And so I'm constantly fighting against that to equalize myself with the human that I'm standing in front of. I love that. I mean, there is such a long list of things that put us in tiers. Our skin color, what we own, our jobs, our gender, our ethnicity, obviously, the roles we play in society, our last names even place us... Yeah. Before we even get in the door. Yeah. You know, and a lot of it, it has to do with access. I mean, let's talk about this pandemic really quickly. There's been a huge disparity between who's getting access to healthcare and vaccines and who's not. So it's amazing that you said that. So I want to go back for just a second. Obviously, your grandparents and your family have given you very strong values to grow up with. And I know there's, you know, obviously many, many more, but these are just a few. You have clearly grown up with that. And I think you are somebody that doesn't just talk the talk, you walk the walk. When you were in Florida, you saw the differences that the world placed you or people like, you know, all different people in with your skin color and just run it down the list. Mm -hmm. And you were not accepted. As a kid, how did you find your, your person? When did you become more self-realized and became more comfortable despite what the world was telling you or trying to label you as? Even with the information that I had early on, I was still operating out of a place of survival. So there's a lot of things that I, I wish that I had been able to enact in my life. Well, you were a kid too, Karen. Let's, let's, Yes. But even when I like moved on to college and then started working in the industry and moved to New York, there was still like my proximity to whiteness was something that I held on to because it's what kept me safe early on in life. And I wasn't really able to like break out of that until much later. I would say, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I wish that I had, uh, this is, I'm going to be really honest here and say that there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of regret in terms of what I knew 
and how I saw the world work and how I actually was functioning in spaces. I don't give myself a lot of, you say that I'm someone who sort of, I, I talk the talk and I walk the walk, but I could have done so much better. Well, okay. I could have done so much better from so much early on. I'm knowing what I knew. Listen, we all can do a lot better from, you know, different points in our lives. Um, and we made the choices that we made at the times that we made it. Here's what I will respectfully challenge you on. I hear what you're saying and I give you a shitload of credit for for stepping up and owning that, you know? But here's the difference. You're doing it. There's a lot of people that are not doing that despite what's going on in their world, in life, knowing it, not knowing it. There's a lot of people just kind of doing their thing to survive. And listen, everyone's got to do their thing and there are very high stakes. Yeah. I totally get that. But I'm just going to redirect it to one thing, Karen. You're doing it right now. Mm -hmm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You spoke out very, very publicly against a very powerful and very prominent producer for what is inappropriate and abusive behavior. So going back... What was that moment that you actually found your space and owned it? And what helped you? I'm, re- I'm going to take my time here because I really want to be honest. And I don't want to, I don't want to give you something, um, something that's prepared. So I'm trying to be very intentional. Do it. I think that there's something about being in the theater where I was allowed to try on so many different personas from an early age that, um, even though I was in my personal life staying as safe as I could, I had the ability of stepping into other worlds and seeing what it could be like from another vantage point. And so what we didn't discuss is that, you know, as great as um, my value system was at home, I still am a child of trauma. So there's a lot of my existence is informed in trying to stay safe in spaces and so I would say probably in theater, it's everything is theater. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was the only constant in my life. Yeah. Art was the only constant and it was the only true safe place. I would say pretty early on when I started my schooling, my collegiate schooling, there was a moment in my freshman year, I remember, that I had sort of assimilated as much as I could. I was trying to get by and do the things that everyone else was doing so that I could get further mm-hmm. in my department. And there was a moment in which there was someone's um, ethnicity came into question. I remember 
someone that I had hung out with had been talking about a guy for a really long time. And so all of the girls on our floor were like, oh my God, this guy. And he goes to this school. And the first time that we saw this guy, he was black. And that became an issue for a lot of people. And I looked around and I was like, oh my God, this is happening right now. And so I had to, I made a choice then to distance myself from those people because I realized that that was, it meant something for my my existence in that apartment as far as like what I was going to be afforded. But it, it was like that one moment where I was like, oh, this is at the core of me. This is someone not um, valuing a human being. That was only when I was a freshman in college that put me in a completely different area mm. once I made that choice. Right. Uh, and then I had to fight really hard to sort of stay in that lane that made things more accessible to me. And then eventually I ended up leaving that college because there was just so much about it that started to open my eyes to what I had been doing to myself. I, I always say I got a PhD in, in code switching at that college. And, and I stand by that. Mm. I learned a lot about how to stay safe in spaces. Right. That would probably be the very first time that I decided I needed to, and there may be other ones, but that's the one that stands out. No one's ever going to penalize you for trying to be safe and to stay safe. I think inherently as human beings, that's always going to be one of our top priorities, right? To be safe and survive. Yeah. You talked a lot about your parents teaching you that people first, it's integrity. Mm-hmm. Money isn't everything. And listen, I'm a television producer, so I work on the other end of the industry. We work in a business that is uh, wonderfully artistic, wonderfully creative, but it's also very challenging in many different ways. It is a world that is um, heavily based upon the roles you play, what you own, what you look like. Did you kind of get lost in that a little bit? And when did you... (laughs) And when did you sort of renew your conviction to who you are and to stay authentic? Uh, Tell me a little bit about the before and after. Well, I think it started, my first Broadway show was Rent and I, I was a swing, the lowest rung on the ladder, but one of the most influential and important for a production. Yeah. And I was uh, a deputy. I was the equity deputy. I didn't realize what it was, but it was like the very <laughs> first time someone was like, you should do it. And I was like, okay. And so I read the handbook and I went to all the meetings. It was back in the day where equity met in the building and you would have like a meeting and people would talk about what was going on in their perspective shows. And right. then we would ask for assistance. And it was really early on that I realized that people needed to be taken care of in spaces. Like in community theater, it's very different because you're all there for, you're all just sort of like rolling with it. And if something happens, people are taken care of in a different way. The stakes are not nearly as high. And mm-hmm. But in professional theater, the ways that people can be taken advantage of start to manifest in different ways. And so mm-hmm. I became an advocate because of being a deputy first. Okay. I would walk into the building and I would be looking at people and saying, are these things that people need help with? And then I would take it back to the union. So it started there. And then once I sort of transitioned out of of that, I never really lost the ideals of being a swing, which is like, uh, you have to know everyone's job. You have to fit (laughs) in whenever possible. You have to form your performance to the person who's on stage most nights, you know, you have to like, you just have to fit in. And when I moved past that and I started originating roles, 
I never lost that idea that I was part of a team. And so all the other shows, I would try to be the deputy and I would try to sort of stand up for people who didn't feel like they had a voice. In West Side Story specifically, I remember, but it, it was a very, that's the show that I won the Tony Award for. And I remember there being a time in which we had already passed, you know, the award season and we were like into the run of the show and we had like this horrible note session. And I remember feeling helpless and feeling like, how will we possibly do this show? Um, these people deserve so much more. And I remember going to my dressing room and getting my Tony Award and being like, you know, you guys, we can do this. Like, look what we did. Like, I didn't do this by myself. Right. We are incredibly talented. We are powerful. We can do this together. And I remember us like, I, I think maybe everyone took it and like spun it or like if you if you flick it, it makes like a really interesting dinging sound. The Tony Award? Yeah, it does. Like it spins. Okay. It kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. pings. But I remember like s- grapple. I was like, how do we, how do I get everybody back together so that we can, we can be a collective and we can do this thing together. So like, I think that was a moment in which I realized that I was in a position of power in which I could sort of equalize things if I made the choice to. And then that never really stopped. Every space that I've been in, I've, you know, I may be in the spotlight, but I'm always looking at the person next to me or listening to see if someone who's, who probably doesn't have the ear of uh, the creatives. And a lot of people say, like, mind your business. <laughs> but I, I really do feel like that everyone is my business. If I have this position of power, right. then everyone is my business. Not that I need to dictate what's going on with them, but as far as protecting them, I'm probably the first line of defense. I'll take it one step further. To me, that's really being a leader. Being a leader isn't about barking orders at others, in my opinion. I think being a leader is caring about your teammates and making sure everyone is looked out for yeah. and making sure that collectively we're all sort of united and moving forward. I think that to me is being a leader. And I've been on enough sets where I know that if it's a good set, I don't know if this is the same on Broadway, but you tell me, if it's a good set, nine times out of 10, it's because number one on the call sheet and also the executive producers are good people that truly lead, that are nurturing, that are safeguarding the people on their set. Yep. So is that the same for you? Yeah, I mean, I try to make that space. If I'm in a show, I remember having a conversation with producers of one of the last shows that I did. And I was, you know, there was there was a conversation about, you know, there's been some sort of, you know, discord between you and the creatives about like how much time we spend rehearsing and if people are tired when we stop. And I was like, look, if you want someone to just do what you you want at all times and not take into account the people who are doing the really heavy lifting, I'm not your person. I cannot operate in that space. If you have me in, in the space, whatever you afford me, you're going to have to afford to other people or else it's going to be a problem. It doesn't resonate with me. But you know what you say about a good set, I did a TV show. I did Harry's Law with Kathy Bates. I did that for a year. And she's great. It was the best job on TV, I can that I, I think I'll probably ever have because that level of professionalism and compassion. She was going through a really hard time. She was battling cancer at the time, and she was tired. But when I tell you that human being 
was available and knew everyone's name. And if she had to take time for something, she was always apologetic. And she was very like, she was a human being at all times. And that set was like that. We were a family. In so many ways, I felt supported. And it was because of number one on the call sheet. Yeah. But it has to come from the top. So you being the lead in all of these productions, you're the champion for your teammates, your castmates. That is a huge responsibility that not everybody takes on. There's a lot of weight. There's a lot of sacrifice. And you're going to take a lot of hits. And not everyone's willing to do it. And you did. Based on what you said earlier, a lot of your choices at the early part of your life, and I, I want to disclaimer this and emphasize that you were young and we're all young learning and finding our way. Safety was a huge concern. Safety and survival, two very basic and uh, primary needs for any human being was huge. Um, and no one can fault you for that. But when you become the leader, that safety and security is it's going to always be up in the air because you're advocating and speaking out for people who can't. And especially in this business, sometimes when you voice or you question how things are being done or not being done, you're looked upon as being a gigantic pain in the ass. Oh, yeah. Or um, you are risking your safety and your security. But risking your safety real safety that that's that's the thing like in our business i always say to people i'm like you know what are you afraid of i understand physical harm so that's where say like re- my safety can be challenged but in our business what's the worst you can do to me not hire me again i'm good yeah i have a different sort of category when we talk about safety and so in spaces like that it never really dawned on me that that would be something that would stop me. Right. When we talk about like, oh, what, what's going to happen to me? Like, what is going to happen to me? You're going to give me a talking to and tell people that I'm difficult? I can sleep at night with that. Right. You're not going to take my life. You know what I mean? It seems very simple. And I think that's possibly because of my upbringing. <laughs> when you see that much trauma and you're ex- you experience it, that, early on, it, it puts other things in a different framework. I understand that. Your definition and baseline of what you can take as hard is completely redefined. Really different. Oh, you don't like me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you think I'm bossy? That's, that's on you. Like, yeah. You have no problem with that. Yeah. No. Because your barometer is completely different. Your meter. Completely different. I want to go back to the authenticity. So a lot of times, especially in our business, people are judged based on the roles you may or may not have, what you own, what you look like. How did you maintain your sense of authenticity, understanding that at the end of the day, it's about your integrity and your choices and your character? Follow my gut. My gut is is the, it's been the one constant. We think about, you know, being a child of trauma like what keeps you safe is that impulse reaction, sensing, oh, there may be fear and then acting quickly. I always listen to my gut. If I'm in a room with someone and 
I get a funny feeling immediately. I don't dismiss it. I'm not someone who doesn't listen to those things. I step further in the material that I would gravitate towards. I always had sort of like an internal compass that was saying, this is yours. You should do this. You have something to add. Right. And then I would pursue those things. I rarely do things just for money. (laughs) I mean, I would say there had been two or three times in my life in which I was in a bind and I had to do something for money and I regretted it the entire time. And so then that solidified my ideas about why I should be doing work and when I should be doing work. So for that reason and that reason alone, I don't work as often as a lot of other people. I don't walk through a lot of doors based on whether or not I feel like it's safe or if these people align with me. And I live a pretty meager existence. You know, I'm not like, I'm not a rich person. I'm, I am definitely um, middle of the road and paying my bills just in time. Right. But it's because I listen to my stomach. My, that internal compass is very loud. You know, when we talk about early experiences and the hardships and adversity and trauma that we may have experienced in our lives, I think once you go through situations and experiences like that, it really redefines your baseline and your your internal core strength of what you define as hard after you've gone through trauma. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So your perspective of what's real and what's not is so stark that I don't think you can shake that, correct? No, I, I, I think you're completely, completely correct in that. But I would say even in that, I mean, in this last year, knowing that I can put my body through a lot and put my mind through a lot and having that sort of framework, I've actually had to re-identify what those boundaries are in a new sense because I realized I've been putting myself in situations in which I can take on a lot. And then people are like, oh, you can take on a lot? Great. Then give us more. And I realized that that doesn't really service me. And also, the only reason I'm starting to recalibrate those boundaries is because as an educator and as someone people sometimes look up to, I basically set the stage for what people will allow themselves to do. And so I was like, oh... They don't have your lived experience, Karen. Right. So if you keep doing things like this, they say, oh, that's what it takes to do the thing that you love to do, like Karen. And I can't afford to do that. So I have to set a better example in the things that I choose and the way that I live my life based on who is watching me. Just you being so aware of other people and staying true to your beliefs and not walking through every door. You've never lost sight of speaking out and for for what's right and taking hits, like really taking hits for other people, even though it can hurt your career, it can hurt you. Has hurt my career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, this business is filled with a lot of uh, colorful people, some absolutely wonderful, and you know, some are not. Uh, some can be downright terrible. And you're not about money. You openly spoke up against bullying and doing what was right and fighting for just compassion and kindness and decency. Can you talk about what, I mean, we have a sense of like where that's from, but before you got to that point, and again, this business is, uh, uh, the entertainment industry is driven a lot by reputation and people you know. 
So a lot of times people don't want to screw with people that are very high up and who are very influential Mm -hmm. and powerful because it can cost you work. It can and it does. Mm -hmm. It's a classic David and Goliath story in many ways. Yeah. You didn't hold back. You are taking hits. Absolutely. Not only for yourself, but for the other people that are coming up behind you. Can you talk a little bit about what gives you the strength and the courage to leverage your position and your voice to do what's right? Have you ever read um, The Gunslinger? Nope. It's a Stephen King novel. There's a part in it where one of the, the people is traveling through different places, different dimensions. And there's a line in there that he says, there are more worlds than these. And I really do think about that all the time. This is not the end destination. I really do feel a sense of being here for a period of time and then my energy will stay, but it will it will be transferred to something else. And so this is not, all of it, (laughs) what I'm experiencing right now, what shows I do, what shows I don't do, how much money I make. This is just a stop on the trip. I feel plugged into something that is uh, more of like a global consciousness. Like I'm, I feel like I'm preparing for something that is further in the future that has nothing to do with this. So when we talk about things that are in this time and in these parameters, um, with these players and these stakeholders and the people who have power, they can't touch me (laughs) because I don't belong in this world only. And after this, I will be something else. It never really occurred to me, like, don't speak out against that person. That person makes and breaks careers. Unless that person is in my face and, and, you know, my life is on the line, why would I fear that human? My mother used to say this thing, (laughs) so silly, but what? as a young kid, I would be afraid to sometimes speak to adults. And she would say to me, what are you afraid of? Can you fit in their mouth? <laughs> and that's the, I, that's what I think of. Why would I be afraid of that person? Is that person going to take my life? <laughs> now show me someone who's going to take my life and then I will take appropriate measure, right? I will, I will make the choices that I need to make based on, you know, my actual survival. But when it comes to power and influence and things that really don't affect who I am. Yeah. I don't have any fear when it comes to that. And I don't know if that makes, <laughs> I just don't, be- I don't believe, I don't believe it really matters at the end of the day. Right. I'm not playing a role just for this life. It's for something that's bigger and that hasn't been named. I know that sounds very vast, but that's really how it feels. It's a complicated and complex and difficult industry sometimes. But I think that when you spoke up in the way that you did for not just for yourself, but for so many in the community and just for all the people that are um, dealing with bullies in in any avenue of their lives and work. The fact that you spoke up and said, you know, encouraged other people to do that. I think that was really incredible. And you advocated for that. For some that may challenge you and say, Karen, you're asking us to live up to your ideals. Like that's kind of elitist. What would you say to them? It's not my ideals. That's a whole other conversation if you really want to know what my personal ethos is. But I think that it's just common decency. I used to think about when I had like a really hard scene partner, I'd be like, you know, the way that I would sort of keep myself in check would be like, that's someone's child. And I think about that every single time I come in contact with someone, I'm like, that is still, that is, that was a baby at one point. Like everyone that we come in contact with is like, is such a valuable 
asset to the space that we're in. Like, if you don't believe that these people should be treated a specific way, then I don't think that that's elitist. I, I think that there's there's possibly something wrong with the way that you value human life. It's not lofty what I'm asking for people to do, yeah. which is just value human beings. That seems like a, a no-brainer. Agreed. It seems very simple. Yeah. It seems like it shouldn't even be something that we should talk about. Why are we even having the conversation? Yeah. Truthfully, yeah. why are we having this conversation? Like, don't yeah. we all believe that people should just be good to one another? <laughs> like, I don't know. Apparently not, because we're all having this issue. Right. But yeah, I agree with you. Now, not only are you leveraging this in your day-to-day life, which I think, again, I don't want to just breeze over that. You are also one of the team members who founded Affect, Artists for Economic Transparency. Now, I'm going to show my age and quote Denzel Washington from Philadelphia. Explain this to me like I was six years old. For people who want to understand what your mission statement is, explain what Affect is and why it was important for you to do this. Yeah, the genesis of Affect was that me and my partner had spent a lot of time in the industry, about 25 plus years. And we both realized that there was so little that we knew about our industry when it comes to how the money works, the economics of it. And that was not a mistake. Yeah. And so we decided that after seeing um, some really troubling information about campaign contributions, at the time trying to undermine our democracy, we realized we, in some way, not knowing where we were putting our talents, we were actually helping fund someone who was trying to undo our democracy. And we thought, that's because we didn't know. Right. We didn't know. We enter into this business and people tell you, these are the things that you need to know. Don't worry about all this other stuff. You'll hire people for all of this other stuff. And so me and my partner said, well, we should just share information. Everyone should be able to to advocate for themselves because they know how the business side of this works. It's really just an organization to start conversations about the business side of the arts and and actually to empower artists and art workers in every single space. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the simplest form of it. But there's emphasis in belonging, equity, equality, and really building a community to, to lift one another up which is, again, shouldn't we just do that? Yeah, but our business is not built on that. Our business is, the scarcity model is is taught to you very, very early on. Right. (laughs) And also like pinning yourself against other people in competition. We like to talk about how the arts community is such a big family, but one of the reasons, you know, I made headlines at the beginning of the year was because we profess to be a family, but when our family members are being taken advantage of, we will not stand in the gap for them. And so this is along the lines of everything that I've been sort of professing is that we we actually have to be a community. We actually have to take care of each other first, whether it's financially or actually physically or with policy, sharing information, and we have to stop pinning ourselves against each other. Yes, absolutely. And so it's in that. It's salary transparency is something that's very important to me right now. Oh, God, yeah. Having everyone know exactly what I'm making so that people can advocate for themselves in spaces is really important to me um, because that's how the power dynamic is, is sort of like held in place. And that's just caring for another person. Yeah. I don't want someone to work as hard as I'm working and get dramatically less and not be able to, to live a good life. 
that sort of disproportionate compensation is something that drives me crazy. And that's something that we see all the time in our business. Yes. That the person in the spotlight is making $50,000 and the person who's lifting them and doing everything is barely making minimum and is working for, you know, health insurance weeks. Yeah. It's an antiquated way of thinking and it's not, it's not people first. No, it's not. That's the furthest thing from that actually for yourself. You know, as human beings, we're all going to go through it's life is ebb and flow. Right. You've gone through incredible challenges and hardships at the beginning stages of your life, which sort of redefined and separated you in a good way, I think, in terms of strength is what I mean. Yeah. About what you can and can't manage and what you see as hard, you know what I mean, that you can manage. That's what I meant. Not that it was a good thing that it happened. No, no, no. I understand. <laughs> Where do you continue to draw your strength and inspiration? And what would your advice be for those who are not where you are in terms of finding themselves or their power yeah. in, in understanding that we can be an agent of change to equalize the power dynamics in all areas of life? Yeah, I mean, I, my inspiration is definitely my students. I just want something better for them. I'm also a parent as well. What was my my life worth if if I can't help build something better for other people? Like, what was I doing with my time? I'm really inspired by my students and the younger people that I come in contact with. And then as far as like what we can do, what we can do is, is value humans. That's it. I mean, if you look at every single thing that every choice that comes your way, regardless of what like what industry you're in. And you ask, is this going to hurt someone? Is this going to help someone? Can I make someone's life easier with the choices that I'm about to make? If that is at the forefront, then we are creating change. It's simple. That's what I think. It's not as complex as people think. How could you do that? I could never. No. Every single decision, can I help someone? Will this hurt someone? Can I make someone's life better? And if you can answer those questions and you can sleep at night, then by God, it's a good life. So listen, uh, Karen, you're, de you're definitely going to have to come back in the future, but I'm also going to ask you for our signature sign-off. It is that time. Mm -hmm. It is the million-dollar questions, my friend. Let me know who you are and what you represent. I'm Karen Olivo, and I represent Truth. With huge thanks and respect to Karen Olivo for guesting, but above all, for showing up for their truth. Follow and support this incredible person on social media. I'll have those links in the episode description. Next up, we've got Miguin Fairbrother. You know him as Police Chief Owen Beckby on the CW's popular legal drama, Burden of Truth. That's what I realize now too, is just how important the language is and how that really does set up a whole, your whole understanding of the world and belief systems and the way you think and, and how you respect people and how you look at other cultures. It's, it's all in the language. Hey, this is Miguin Fairbrother and I'm coming to Reppin. We've had some incredible guests on this show, so go back and check out past episodes and download them all. And don't forget to subscribe and share. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review on Apple Podcast, Podchaser, Good Pods, or wherever you're getting your podcasts. Thank you to my technical director and musical composer, Nelson Pinero, for all of his time and care. And always love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, Stand up 
and represent. We have to try to find ways to find peace and art and love and connection in the midst of the chaos of life. So that's life writing. I am so excited to have comic and daily show correspondent Roy Wood Jr. Well, hello. That joke was birthed from my trip to the African-American Smithsonian in DC, which that was the first time I saw something where, all right, on this floor, it's nothing but good news. Mm. We've gone through slavery, we've gone through desegregation and emancipation proclamation and reconstructing but on this floor beyonce michael jordan Issa ray thank you for coming <laughs> come and join us on life writing for more stories like these and the tools writers need to make yourself the hero or heroine of the adventure of your life life writing is available wherever you get your podcasts